These are things that Timothy's going to need to anchor his hope in so that when things get hard and his mentor is no longer there, he's going to hear these words echoing in his mind. And many of you know this. If you've had a loved one that, that meant so much to you, that, that invested in you and taught you things, um, you go do things later, and even though that they're gone, you can still hear them talking to you. These words kind of echo in your mind. And, and I have those words all the time, even though my dad's still with me, where I'll be working in the yard and I'll hear my dad say, why are you mowing the grass in flip-flops? You know, or why are you, you know, just these things that are wisdom that I need to know because I need to keep my toes. Something as simple as that. And yet Paul is investing in Timothy as a young man who is a pastor. He needs wisdom from someone who's already walked down the path before him, who knows the way, who knows the hardships that he's going to engage and is able to say, hey, keep going. It's going to be worth it. So that's what Paul's writing to Timothy for. Uh, I expressed to you last week and the week before that it's likely that when Paul was arrested, Timothy was actually there witnessing it take place. And Timothy's going, oh no, all the work that Paul was doing is going to cease. And what we're going to find out today is that the work that God called Paul to do uh, was not over yet. It just had changed locations. And so in verse 1 of chapter 2, we continue... As Paul writes to Timothy, he says, You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So he starts with an encouragement and says, therefore. Now, here's the deal. When it comes to Scripture, most of the time, Many times, people will quote Scripture and they will completely leave the context out. That is dangerous because when you take Scripture out of its context, it's a pretext and it essentially, you can make it say anything you want. That's why we teach the whole Bible because if you have Scripture and it's in the context of an entire Word of God in the, in the Bible that we have, the canon, then the reality is if it contradicts another passage, then that's probably not what it means. It, you have to take the whole Bible or just none of it, because it, it comes as a package. And so he says, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. He says, therefore, because right before that, he had said some other things that tie into it. So what is he saying, therefore, after? He says in verse 13 of the previous chapter, he says, hold fast. And this is the words that you would understand if you were a shipman, if you were out on sea, and they said, hold fast. They would say, hold tight. Many times the ship would hold fast by throwing an anchor into the ocean that would eventually grab hold of something that couldn't be moved, and then the ship would be safe, right? So he says, hold fast to the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So the word pattern that I didn't touch last week, that word actually means architectural plans. So if someone's building a building and they have a pattern that they're building it after, they would have plans, and those plans would be drawn up. And I have for you in the background there essentially the plan that somebody had made up of the Calvary Chapel dove symbol. And it's just a symbol that Calvary Chapel has used for years. It's integrated in our symbol on our sign. But essentially, it, it gives dimensions, and it gives you know, size, and it gives shape, and it gives thickness, and the angles, and of course, as an engineer, I enjoy drawings like this, because you know exactly what they're trying to tell you. You use architectural drawings to communicate to the builder 
this is what I want built, and this is how I want it done. And then you give them tolerances and all the things that go along with that. But along the side there, you probably can't read it. It's also got Bible verses, because this isn't a normal building plan. This is a, a plan to build up the church, not just a, a sign, not just a symbol, but the church is, of, in effect, the body of Christ here on earth. It's the pillar, the ground of the faith, the, the building of God that's not made by human hands, but it's made by living spirit living within human beings. We are each members of the body of Christ, and brick by brick, we're being fit together to be this, this church, big C, that represents God here on earth. And so he says, hold fast to the pattern. Keep building according to the plans, essentially, is what he's saying. And he says, hold fast to the pattern of sound words. Now, if you have a sound foundation, it's a, it's a foundation that's sure it won't be moved. It's got all the stuff done underneath. So when you pour concrete and you get an earthquake, it, it won't be shaken or broken. So the this, this sound words, the teaching that's in the Bible is there, and it's important that we hold fast to it because we build everything else in our lives upon it we will not be shaken. And he talks about that. Jesus does in Matthew chapter 7. He says, he, says, he who hears my words and, and takes heed to them and builds his life upon them will be the, like the wise man who has built his house on a firm foundation so that the, when the winds wave and the, 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 the uh, ocean roars, then when it's shaken, it won't be moved. But he who does not hear my words and put them to practice will be like the, the unwise man, the foolish man who builds his house upon sand so that when the wind, winds blow and the waves crash, it will be moved and it will be shaken and it won't stand. So he says, hold fast to these sound words. So he says, the sound words are important, but he says this in verse 13, hold fast to these sound words which you have heard from me, the doctrine, the teachings. But here's the deal, sometimes... As believers and even as Christians, you've met the Christian that is so strong in their faith and so strong in the words that they forget to love people. And, and if you've ever met someone like this, they're very joyless. They've got all the right doctrines. They understand all the things about God, and they will argue to the point that they will push people away from Jesus because though they, they believe the words and they have the right information, they're so right that they're dead right. They don't love people. So they're very, very legalistic, and they're rough on people that don't know, yet know the Lord, and they will just beat people to death with Scripture, with the Bible. And so we have to have a balance. We've got to have truth. It's important. It's the foundation. But if we have truth without love, it's really uh, brutality. And if we have love at the same time, if we love people, but we don't have the, the right understanding of God and the right doctrine, the teaching, then it's hypocrisy. We love people straight to hell. So we need to be balanced in that. And so after he said all of this, he says, keep by the Holy Spirit these things, uh, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. So as he goes on, he talks about some people that have left him behind, but, but in all of this, he says, hold fast to the pattern of sound words. Why does he say this? Because teaching the word of God and not compromising in it, even in Paul's day, was actually not politically correct. It was something that offended people. Uh, to tell people that there's only one way to be saved when they live in a culture that believes in all kinds of different gods and philosophies, and you tell them, hey, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. It's offensive. 
It's life-giving to the one who believes it, but to the one that does not believe, it's, it's like spitting in their face. Everything you believe is wrong. If you ever had somebody tell you that, then you, you get offended, right? The thing that you're doing, the way that you're raising your family, the, the things that you believe that cause you to live the way that you live, they're wrong. Now, do people need to hear that? If they're not following Jesus, they do. But to do it in the right spirit is important. And so Paul tells Timothy, you therefore, in light of this fact, be strong in grace. Now, if you think about grace, a lot of people, you explain to them that grace is giving people what they don't deserve. So you, don't, you think of that and you, you tell somebody that and they're, they're a new believer and they go, so I'm just supposed to be a doormat? Just let people walk all over me and love them anyway? Yes, in a way, you are supposed to. Are we good at that? No. Jesus was the example, if you want to see, a, a spirit-filled uh, doormat. He loved people. He let them beat him and spit in his face and lash him and, and mock him. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But at the same time in his second coming, all who refuse to believe and surrender to him, the whosoever will not may come, they will be judged. They will, they will be tread out like the wine press. I was reading this morning in Isaiah in chapter 62 or 63. It talks about Jesus and his second coming. And it says that everybody's going to look at him when he comes. and they're, it, He's going to look like he's been covered in the blood of grapes. And essentially, he's going to tread out the wine press. He's going to tread out anybody who does not believe, who rebelled, who rejected his free gift of salvation. They will be judged just like those who were judged in the flood, who did not get on the boat, Noah's Ark. It, they're, they're going to be judged, and they died, not believing in the promise that God made for all who would believe. And so um, he says, be strong in grace. Be strong in grace. Be good at it. Be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Love people. Give them what they don't deserve, but do it like Jesus does. And we're going to look at that. So in verse 2, he says, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, he's already said something that I think is quite interesting. In his last words of the letter, he says, Oh, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and the contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. He says, guard what was committed to you. Now, what was committed to Timothy was actually faith in Jesus, the teachings of the early church, uh, the, the expression of what happened and what Jesus did and how he lived and how he died and how he rose from the dead. He says, he says guard this faith that has been committed to you. Guard the faith that's been deposited in your account. The things that you believe guard them because there will be people come along and try to sideswipe you and cause you to no longer believe them. We have to be sober and vigilant in what we believe. We need to not just accept anything that someone says about God. How many people do you know that talk about God and you listen to what they say and you look at how they live and they're like, do they believe in the same God that I do? Because I don't think God means Jesus to them. And the reality is more, more than likely they don't believe in Jesus. They believe in God. I know he exists. Okay, but do you know him personally? And so he says to them, he says, uh, he, he says to Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard this deposit with your very life. 
But then he doesn't just say guard it. He doesn't say put it under your mattress and, and forget about it until you need it. What he says is, in, in this verse, in, chat, in verse 2, he says, the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, this deposit, this continual pouring into your account, he says, commit these to faithful men. Deposit it in other people. The thing that you have had deposited in you, now, in the same way, go deposit it in others. Essentially, it's like the parable of the stewards where the, the master gives all of the stewards something to invest until he returns. And there were many different levels that he, he gave different people different amounts, right? But then he said, here it is. I'm going to be back. And so most of them, except for one, took it and they invested it in some way or another so that when the master returned, there was dividends for his investment. He didn't just get back what he gave them, but also it, many of them doubled his investment. Like when you put money in the bank and you wait for the interest to come in. Even putting it in a savings account, you get a little bit back. So Paul says, invest it in others, but not just in any investment, invest it in others who will take what you give them and also invest it. It's a pyramid scheme, right? Except it doesn't cost you because the original investment, you didn't even have to bring to the table. You don't have to bring your 500 bucks to the meeting, drink the Kool-Aid and start making everybody else drink the Kool-Aid. He says, here, here's Jesus. Here's your salvation. Here's your new life in Christ. Here, here's everything to live the life that you've been called to. Now, go give it to someone else. Freely you receive, Jesus said. Now go and freely give. And essentially, with no in investment of our own, we get to be investors. It's the best stock market ever. You don't have to bring your five bucks and start. He gives you everything you need, and all you got to do is let it pour into you and let it pour into others. And so he says there, commit these things to faithful men who will also be able to teach others. So I have there for you uh, kind of a rephrasing of it. That which was entrusted to you, deposit it into others who will invest it well. And then he says, excuse me, essentially what he's saying here is be a disciple of Jesus who makes disciples. Be a disciple who makes disciples. Why are we all called to make disciples? Well, Jesus said it pretty clearly in Matthew chapter 28. He said, go therefore into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Preach repentance and then faith. And then as you do that, teach them all the things that I have commanded you. That's what Jesus said. That's what he said to the apostles. That's what he said to the disciples. And so he's also saying that to us. Teach, teach them to others. Otherwise, our faith dies with us. You know, the family name is no longer whatever your name is. The family name is Jesus Christ. And we get to invest in that kingdom, and our family name gets to continue on until his return. And so in verse 3, he continues on, and he says, You therefore must endure. And that's going to be the key word today, endurance. He says, you therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So he talks about endurance, 
And then he gives us three examples of endurance. Now, he talks first about a soldier. He's not talking about a soldier that's on leave. He's talking about a deployed soldier. And he's essentially implying that as believers in Jesus, we're not on leave. We are deployed soldiers in the army of the Lord. Our, our kids march around the house. You ever hear that song in church growing up? I'm in the Lord's army. And they'll go marching around, and Lucy will start getting louder than she normally is, believe it or not. And she's just, yes, sir, you know, and, and it's a cute song, but it's, it's true. As believers in Jesus, we're called to be his foot soldiers. We have been left in ground zero. This is not a safe place. We're soldiers. And so I put there for you, deployed soldiers endure hardship. I work with a woman whose uh, son is in the military, and I cannot remember. Oh, he's in the Navy. He's always on these battleships. He goes all over the world, but he's deployed. And you know, if you know a soldier that's deployed, that they endure hardship. Now, am I talking about the hardships of war? Yes. But what's the other hardship? Well, while they're deployed, this man in particular, he had his first child. He did not get to meet this first child until the child was almost six to eight months old. That's a hardship, right? But he gave it up for his calling as a soldier. He, de- he, he enlisted. He wants to please those who enlisted him. Now, also, there's benefits. He gets paid, and that's his job. But as a soldier, he knows that's part of it. Now, he might not have known that as a young man signing up, but now he recognizes that as a soldier, he will have to endure things that are a lot to endure. Does that mean he's supposed to give up as a soldier? No, he needs to remain faithful as a soldier. And as he does that, he will please the one who enlisted him. Now, another thing to know is that soldiers in some ways, have to unentangle themselves from the things of this life. You know, I read a story, and, uh, and one of the guys I was reading that was teaching this passage, he said that there was a soldier one time that was a part of a unit, and they got deployed kind of unexpectedly. And one of the soldiers said, well, I can't be deployed. I got 12 watches to fix. He was a, watch key, he was a watchmaker, and he was, he was doing his job, his regular job as a watchmaker, and then they enlisted him, and okay, time to go. And he's like, I got stuff to do. Well, that stuff is over. Now you're a soldier. Now you need to go and be faithful in this thing. So essentially, as soldiers of Jesus Christ, many times God's called us to unentangle ourselves from the things that will keep us from doing what he's called us to do. For many of us, there are things that, that God may have already called us away from. For many of us, there might have been things that he's called us to but many of them come with a cost, right? As, as a pastor and as a bivocational pastor, God's called me away from just hanging out with my family on Friday nights. I will be here. I will be at home. I'll be locked in a room and I will be doing my work and trying to ignore the screaming kids in the next room. Even though I love my wife and I want to help, I have to engage in the scriptures so that I have something to engage you all with on Sunday morning. Don't feel bad for me. That's what God's called me to do. I've spent way too much time feeling bad for myself, but eventually I've embraced that. Not because I, miss, I want to miss my children, not because I want to miss out on them growing up, but because that is what God has enlisted me to do. That's, that's my peace in the body of Christ. For you, it's going to be something totally different. But it costs every disciple to be a disciple maker. It costs every disciple to follow Jesus. 
Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must first deny himself. What has God called you to deny yourself? Take up your cross, which is a a torture device, and follow Jesus. That cross may not be something that you think it would be. It's not going to be necessarily death, although there are some Christians called to death for their faith. But it might be losing friends. I lost a lot of friends when I started following Jesus. It might be uh, foregoing a promotion. It might be not making as much money. You know, uh, over this last season, I got, um, and I'm sharing stories about me, but not because I want you to be, yeah, go for it. I want you to recognize that, that faith costs. And, and being a soldier for Christ costs. Uh, one of the decisions that I made as a man who is also employed by a secular job is I made the decision that, look, uh, I'm going to work my tail off while I'm at work. But as much as depends upon me, I will work off my tail so I don't have to go in on Saturdays. Sounds great, right? I'm going to hold to that conviction until I go to my review with my boss and he says, you know, you're the only guy that doesn't come in on Saturdays. What's the deal? And I can either shirk back and say, okay, I'll be here Saturday, or I can stand up and at least speak my piece respectfully and say, hey, I get what you're saying, but this isn't the only thing I do. Uh, I've also got a family at home. Anybody can do my engineering job. Not just anybody can raise my children. Anybody can do my engineering job, but God's called me to be a pastor. And so he said, I understand that and I respect it, but recognize that I can't give you a raise. I still got the cost of living adjustment. The joke's on him. But the reality is, um, he's not going to promote me for that. The world says, wow, you really don't care at all. But the reality is, as a disciple of Jesus, I actually care more about my job than most of the guys there. Not because I, I, but but I want to be faithful so that people see Jesus in me. So it looks totally different to the eyes of the world that say, wow, you don't even care about your, your, your boss or your job. You're, you're kind of a bad worker. Uh, does that really mean that? Or does it mean that some of the guys that I work with, maybe they should work a little harder during the week so there's not any work on Saturday? And in some jobs, there's always more work to do, right? My point is, is that as soldiers, it costs. So the soldier, his service magnifies the one who called him into service. And uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Uh, Peter writes kind of concerning the battlefield that is called life. He says in verse 1, he says, uh, The elders who are among you I exhort, I who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also, he says, a partaker of the glory that will be revealed. He says to the shepherds, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. You're going to receive the prize, is what he's saying. But then in verse 8 and 9, he says this, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He's describing the life that we live as Christians. Be sober, be vigilant. This is the idea of a soldier, right? Um, He says, resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood who are in the world. So the rest of the Christians around the world experience suffering. He says, Timothy, keep going. You're going to suffer, but it's going to be okay. 
So then in verse 5, he continues and he says, and also if anyone competes in athletics, now many of you are sports people, so maybe you can relate more to this than you can the soldiering. He says, if anyone competes in athletics, he's not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. So on the slide, in verse 5, he talks about an athlete. And when he talks about an athlete, you got to think about Paul. Many of you might not know this, but Paul was a sports enthusiast. If he was alive and well today, I don't think he'd be painting his chest and screaming at the top of his lungs while chugging a big beer. But I would say that he would be at the game, and he would be enthused about the game. And he makes all these sports references, but he, he says you need to endure just like a winning athlete. Not just any athlete, but a winning athlete. Paul was a huge fan of the Olympics. It was called the Isthmian Games at the time. And in these games, athletes had to be legal citizens of the place that they represented, whether it was country or a region. Um, They also had to prepare a certain way. There was rules for how you could prepare to compete. And if you did not prepare properly, you would be disqualified to compete. That's a stringent thing, right? You can't just Google stuff and watch videos and practice at home. You had to practice however they told you how to do it. I don't know much about the process. But if you didn't, you were disqualified from competing at all. But if they won and later were found out to have been cheaters, (laughs) their crown would be taken away. So his point is they endured. And he makes a note in 1 Corinthians, I think it's chapter 9, he says, when they compete, they compete for a crown that fades. They compete for, essentially, if you've ever seen some of the, the older videos where they, movies where they've redepicted this, they would put a laurel wreath around their neck and it would be covered in the most beautiful ornamental flowers. But what would happen to that crown the next day is it would just be dead flowers. It would just kind of fade and leave stuff all over your house and it'd be nasty and eventually it's like, let's get rid of this. I don't know, maybe they would do what we do with roses from weddings and press them into a photo album. But the idea is they would do this They would endure, they would train, they would be good standing citizens, they would do all this for the sake of the opportunity to be crowned the champion, and yet their trophy room would be empty in a couple of days when the thing rotted and they were forced to throw it out. They didn't have trophies that, like we do, that look gold and have the little thing on there. You know, when Kelly and I got married, apparently she was into sports a lot, and we had this big stinking, like tote you know that you store things in and because her her uh her friend jamie's dad was like the trophy guy in town he made trophies he had the store which apparently the sports kind of kept going um she had a tote full of more trophies than i've ever seen i had a bowling trophy from when i was in kindergarten i had nothing else and she had all these trophies i go what are we going to do with this she goes i i don't know you know in second grade it was a pretty good team you know uh so but we make trophy rooms, but they wouldn't even have the benefit of being able to do that. They couldn't cryogenically freeze things. It would fade. And what Paul is saying that as, as competing athletes endure for a crown that fades, we, competing for the hiring call, higher calling of God, we compete for a crown that cannot be taken from us. The crown of life. And this crown will be in the trophy room of Jesus. We get to heaven we don't get to earn our salvation by competing. That's not the point. But we do get to earn rewards. And those rewards that we gain, 
we get to take them into heaven with us, and the beauty is we have something to give back to Jesus. I love this picture because I want something to give to Jesus. I'm giving my life to him, no doubt, but I'd like to be able to throw something at, in, in his corner and say, hey, it's all you, man. Thank you. I got to do it. I got to live by faith, and it was hard, but it's so worth it because now I get to give something to my Savior. And so he says, those who compete for this, um, he says, unless he competes according to the rules, he doesn't get to compete in the athletics. And so again, enduring, keeping to the sound doctrine, not compromising our faith. Verse 6, he says, the hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. So he talks about the third example, which is a farmer. Maybe some of you can relate to this. Farming is hard work. And a farmer has to work. Many people compare the Christian life to a work that's just easy and you don't have to do much. But as Christians, we need to work. If we are like farmers, what happens when a farmer does not touch his farm? What happens? Just drive through our county and find a farm that's been abandoned by someone passing away. Here's an example. We all drive to farming, or Farmington, right? Anyone in here not drive to Farmington? Right, we spend most of our time doing it, you know. But the reality is, when you get to Farmington on the way, there's something called, something excellent from my childhood, the Doe Run Raceway. The Doe Run Raceway is essentially a farm, even though it's not a farm. Uh, but it's, it's a field, and it's got this huge track. But the owner died, and he didn't leave it to anybody. And so, legally, no one could go on it, set foot on it, and take care of it. Until recently, apparently, where they bailed the grass that was laying there. But this place, because no one touched it for years, no one took care of it, it grew up and it's just covered in weeds. And as farmers, if we don't take care of our farm, weeds grow up and they overtake and they choke us out. Jesus said in the parable of the, the garden, he says, essentially, if, if you don't weed things out of your life that need to go, then there will be no fruit. There will only be weeds. And so farmers must work. Only worthless weeds grow when no, one, when no work is done. And farmers also have to be patient. How many of you are patient? Yeah, me neither. Patience is a virtue that God wants to instill in. It's a fruit of the Spirit, by the way. Fruit of the Spirit, showing that the Spirit is living in us, we will grow in patience. And so a farmer has to be patient. But also notice, a farmer is the first to partake of the crops that he, bened, that he grows. So it's also what keeps him alive physically. So we as Christians, if we endure like farmers, if Timothy endures like a farmer and he continually cultivates the word of God in his life, the reality is, and not only is he going to be effective and is he going to sow seed on the lives of those around him, but he's also going to be fed himself. He, he who grows a crop, he who spends time in the word of God, I talked about earlier how I, Friday nights are gone now, I'm in the Word of God, but the beauty of it is that it's not time wasted because not only can I pour into your lives the Word of God, but I also partake in the Word. I, I probably learn way more from the Scriptures than I actually communicate to you guys because I'm sitting there at the ocean. Somebody compared teaching the Word of God one time and preparing a message like going to the ocean and, and taking a thimble and dipping it. You've partaken of the, the beauty of the ocean. You've seen its vastness, its power. You've, you've taken a, a little thimble, and you take it back to the church with you, and you say, hey, check out the ocean. And then you try to show them the majesty, and the beauty, and the magnificence of the ocean. But the, 
the hard part about it is, all you guys can see is the symbol. And so as believers, many times, and I was guilty of this, I relied upon those who taught me the Word of God on Sunday to get me through the whole week. But the beauty of being a Christian is that the pastor isn't the only one that gets to go to the ocean. The pastor isn't the only one that gets to spend time with Jesus. So if we will all spend time at the ocean, spiritually speaking, I know you guys are all thinking, I'd love to go to the ocean, but spend time with the ocean that is God and His power and His majesty and His glory. You'll spend time with Him personally. And you'll spend time just trying to understand how He works and the ways that He wants to pour into your life. The beauty is, is that when we all come to church on Sunday, we're all carrying a thimble. And that thimble can be nourishment for each other. And maybe the thimble that you got and the things you embraced and the things that you noticed while you were there with God, when you bring them to church with you, somebody else gets a, a little flavor of this. It's like a, a taste testing. We all get to taste test what we've all drawn out of the same fountain. And then we get to see the manifold grace of God pouring into your lives and my life, and then we all benefit one another. And I love this because each one of us sees things from... Just look at the four accounts of the gospel. you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of them has a different thing that they emphasize about what they saw in the life of Jesus. We all get to do the same thing. You all get to benefit from living in accordance with Jesus throughout your week, and you get to testify, here's what Jesus did in my life. And then somebody on the other side of the room goes, I didn't know he did that. I didn't know that about Jesus. And they get to go look for it themselves. You know, you, my, my, uh, my aunt actually has a place down in uh, Venice, Florida, I think. And their favorite thing is to walk along the beach for hours and look for shark teeth. I didn't know there were shark teeth. So now the next time I go to the beach anywhere, I'm going to be looking for shark teeth. At the ocean, hopefully, right? Not at St. Joe Park. So um, anyway, as farmers, we benefit from what we study and pour into the lives of others. So verse 7. He says, consider what I say, and may the Lord give you understanding in all things. So there's, there's much more to be gathered from those three examples. He says, remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffer trouble as an evildoer even to the point of change. But the word of God is not chained, therefore I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen by God, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. So as we close, I'm going to kind of wrap it up quickly. Verse 7 through 9 is, we need to not only endure like a soldier, not only endure like a farmer, not only endure like an athlete, but really it's all pointing to as they all endure in those ways, we need to endure like our Savior who endured everything for us. To the disciples, it looked like Jesus' death on the cross was actually going to stop Jesus' kingdom from coming. He'd been talking about this kingdom that he was going to usher in, and they're going, but you're dying. You keep telling us you're going to be murdered. How's your kingdom going to keep going? And he's, just trust me. And as his death ushered in the very birth of the kingdom of God, right? His death was not the final word. It was actually the very beginning. Then he sends his Holy Spirit to fill believers, and then the church blew up at that time. Then persecution comes. Persecution threatened the death of the early church as it was in its infant stages. And yet, what we find out is that the persecution, 
the pressure on the church to be silent and to be quiet and to stop talking about this Jesus. We already put him to death. That's why we tried to stop his mission. And then what it says there is that as they were persecuted, the church actually grew more. It actually caused them to branch out into different areas, even though they wanted to stay home with their families. Persecution caused them to have to kind of squeeze out and, and escape, and their escape actually ended up being them planting the gospel in the places they went to. So then Paul, to Timothy, it looked like Paul being arrested even this final time, knowing that death was imminent, it looked like his imprisonment and his ultimate execution was going to be the end of Paul's ministry. But Timothy was still alive. Timothy was a result of Paul's ministry. And so the word of God, Paul says, is not chained. I'm chained, he says. But remember his greeting at the beginning of 2 Timothy was an apostle and a prisoner according to the will of God. So if it's the will of God for Paul to be a prisoner, he's going to use him as a prisoner. And, and what Paul's going to ultimately say is the word of God, even though I'm chained, the word of God is not. Paul had a guard chained to him 24 hours a day. Do you want to be chained to the apostle Paul if you don't believe in Jesus? Absolutely not, because he's going to badger you. He's like, hey, if I'm going to be in prison, guess what? You're going to hear about Jesus. But we find out later that there were certain soldiers that said, hey, I'll take your duty. Because as they became believers and he persuaded them to believe in the one who could save their soul and, and cleanse them of sin and, and give them his righteousness, as they became believers, some of the soldiers were actually saying, hey, can I take your duty? I'll stay up all night. I'd love to hear a Bible study from Paul. So Paul continued to make disciples as a prisoner. So I'm getting kind of excited, but it's just the beauty of what God does. Verse 10, he says, Therefore, because of this, I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul says, I endure for the benefit of others. Paul's thoughts were not towards himself, they were towards others. In his suffering, in his imminent death, he was thinking about others first. That's why he's writing this letter to Timothy. He's on death row and he's like, I want to make sure Timothy's going to be okay. Wait a minute, are you going to be okay, Paul? He says, I'm not worried about that. He says, I endure everything for the sake of those who are chosen by God, even if they're Roman soldiers, even if they're the ones that are chaining me down, that they may receive the eternal benefit from God. Paul says, just like I did. And then I want you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. Because uh, whoever wrote Hebrews, I believe it was Paul, but many others kind of contend with that idea. Uh, Paul writes, or whoever wrote it, in verse 1 of chapter 12. He says, Therefore, we also, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. Get rid of the entanglements, he says. Let us run with endurance. Let us compete like an athlete with endurance. Cross-country season's coming up. Need endurance to keep going. He says, looking unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. He endured death, knowing that death was not the final say, but that as he endured and remained faithful, he despised the shame, but as a result of that, he sat down at the right hand of God on the throne of God. And then in 
First Timothy, he continues and he says, this is a faithful saying. He writes that phrase multiple times in First, Second Timothy, and also in Titus. He says, this is a faithful saying. If we died with Christ, we shall also live with him. He's quoting from his Romans chapter 6, verse 8 and 9. He says, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. We will be joint heirs with Jesus. We will reign in the kingdom that he brings forth. If we deny him, it says, though, he also would deny us. In Luke chapter 9, verse 26, he says, he says, if you deny me before men, so also I will deny you before my Father who is in heaven. If you are ashamed of me, is the idea, then I will also be ashamed of you. He says, if we are faithless, though, he remains faithful and he cannot deny himself. In other words, our doubt, our unbelief, even if we do go sideways and doubt and have unbelief about Jesus, it doesn't change his faithfulness. Our faithlessness will not change his faithfulness. And so this morning, as we look at this passage, I want to encourage you to consider him who endured and, and recognize that his endurance led to glory. And, and Paul writes this to Timothy because Timothy doesn't have an easy life. As a pastor, as a young man in a, in a pagan culture, a culture saying, hey, just be quiet. I'm tired of hearing it. And, and even in the church, there were those that would come in and say, eh, does the scripture really teach this? Did really Jesus and he, say all the same things that Satan says? Did God really say? And what Paul tells Timothy is, the things that I've taught you among many witnesses, anchor yourself to them because they're going to keep you from being shaken. Endure to hold fast to the pattern because right? God's continuing to build his his, uh, his building through us. And don't worry about the cost. It's going to be worth it in the long run. So let's pray.